Good morning. Happy New Year. It has been a joy to be with you all this morning. It's been great to sing with you, to pray with you. So much good theology was prayed, so much good theology was sung, and it's been such an encouragement to me to be with you here this morning. And I am thrilled for the opportunity to preach God's Word. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. You can turn to the 8th chapter, and we'll read together verses 31 through 39. After we read the passage together, I'll pray for God's blessing on this morning's message, and then we'll dive right in. Okay? So if you're there, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, let's begin reading. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for this good word. Thank you for the strength that it gives us. Thank you for the peace that it gives us. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. God, I pray that you would use it in our lives today. I pray that you would use it in our lives throughout this next year. I pray that it would fuel our hope. I pray that it would indeed strengthen us and stabilize us. God, I pray that this text would transform our lives. It would transform our response to trials. It would transform our response to testing. God, I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, you would accomplish every single one of your good purposes for this congregation. Bless your word magnify your name. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. For many, the new year is, is filled with exciting possibilities. It promises new opportunities, new adventures, new friends, new memories. It could be the best year yet. It's only January 14th. Could be the best year yet. For some, it's a chance to learn a new skill or discover a new hobby. This could be the year they take up cross-stitch, or bird-watching, or ant-farming, or golf. 
lots of exciting possibilities. For others, it's a chance to hit the reset button. It's a chance to start over or to begin something they've put off for far too long. It's an opportunity to change direction, to adopt healthier habits, to improve their mental health or their finances. And the start of a new year is accompanied by high expectations. But this isn't everyone's experience. There's a lot of people who are dreading 2024. Many are fearful. A quick Google search reveals that there are a lot of people who are afraid of the next election cycle. Political violence, the spread of disinformation, AI, which apparently for a lot of people is really just code for killer robots or the reason their boss thinks they're expendable. They're afraid of newer, more deadly strains of the coronavirus. They're afraid of recession, job loss, Donald Trump, the death of democracy, the lack of secure borders, the war in Gaza, the war in Ukraine, inflation, housing costs, high interest rates, rising gas prices, and the list goes on. But you get the point. As we head into 2024, many Americans are plagued by fear and are desperately searching for hope, for some assurance that everything's going to be okay. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe it's not the next presidential election, or artificial intelligence, or some war overseas. Maybe it's your next mortgage payment. Maybe it's medical bills. Maybe you're afraid for your kids. Maybe you're concerned for their health, for their socialization, for their future. Maybe life has just beaten you down. Maybe it seems like nothing has gone your way. Maybe 2023 was an awful year. Maybe 2024 looks to be even worse. And you're terrified of what the future might hold. You're not sure you have the strength to face another day. And hope for a brighter tomorrow is slowly fading away. Friend, if this world has got you down, if it has put you through the ringer, and you're searching for hope, you're searching for some relief, I want you to know that this morning's message is for you. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote to suffering Christians to strengthen their faith and fuel their hope. This message, inspired by God's Spirit and recorded in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, is as relevant in 2024 as it was in the first century. God wants you to know, just as he wanted the believers in Rome to know, that he is for us, that he loves us, that because these things are true, our future is secure. Paul wrote these words so that Christians in Rome would know that God's love is the basis of their eternal hope. God's Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write these words so that come what may, we can be confident, absolutely confident, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And to prove this, Paul is going to pull out all the stops. He's going to use every tool at his disposal. In a world without word processors and bolded text and italicized font and highlights, Paul uses repetition and literary devices and emotionally charged language to help us see that we are eternally secure in Christ that we are more than conquerors because of his love, that even if we die, that God the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit. Paul's argument 
here at the end of Romans 8 is fairly straightforward. And it can be broken down into two parts. First, God's love for us is indisputable, cannot be disputed. And second, God's love for us is indestructible. The first part consists of a series of rhetorical questions. And these questions are designed to prove that God loves us and to demonstrate that the case for our justification and our eventual glorification is airtight. It's an airtight case for our justification and for our eventual glorification. And from these questions, Paul launches into the second major section in this passage, so 31 through 34, series of rhetorical questions. And he launches into the second section. And there he uses afflictionless and carefully crafted language to highlight God's enduring love for his people. So as we work through this passage this morning, we're going to focus first on God's indisputable love for us, and that's described in verses 31 through 34, and secondly, on the fact that God's love for us is indestructible, which is described in verses 35 through 39. That's it. That's the outline for this morning's message. Just two points. Number one, God's love for us is indisputable. Number two, God's love for us is indestructible. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. But it is incredibly powerful. It's so awesome. It's so encouraging. And I pray that it is an encouragement to you this morning. God's love is so great There's no hardship we can't endure. There's no storm we can't weather. And there's nothing in all creation that should cause us to fear or to lose hope. That's Paul's point. And before we really explore that first point, I just want to pause. And I just want to take a minute to talk to any unbelievers that might be here this morning. Anybody who's here who wouldn't describe themselves as a Christian as someone who has put their faith in Jesus alone, as someone who has turned from their sins and is trusting in what Jesus did on the cross as their only hope, as their only hope of being right with God, as their only hope for salvation, as their only hope for eternity in his presence. I want to talk to you for just a minute. Everything I've said up to this point is for Christians. This passage is for Christians. It's for those who have trusted in Jesus. And God is writing this to give them hope. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you haven't trusted in Jesus, you don't have hope. These promises aren't for you. The only thing that God promises you is that things are going to get a whole lot worse. When I was here a month ago, we studied studied John chapter 3 verses 16 through 21, and I made this point that the consequences of rejecting Jesus are unimaginably dreadful. The consequences for remaining in your sin, for not repenting, for not trusting Jesus are unimaginably dreadful. The Bible says that God will judge you for your sins. God is not for you. He's against you. His hot, holy wrath is against you. And the cost or the consequence of rejecting a holy God, an immeasurably glorious God, are immeasurably terrible. And the Bible says that you will spend eternity in a place called the lake of fire. 
I want you to know that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You can trust Jesus today. You can trust in his work on the cross today and be saved and have this hope. This hope that will carry you through life on into eternity. You can have this hope. And if you're longing for that, you're wanting that, even as you hear this message preached this morning, you say, I want that. Talk to somebody after the service. Talk to Pastor Joe. Talk to Pastor Greg. They would love to talk to you about how this hope can be yours. Please do that. I pray that you would. So with all these things in mind, let's move to Paul's first point. God's love for us is indisputable. The final paragraph of Romans 8 begins with a question. Look with me again at verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? These things is a reference to everything that Paul has communicated in the last three chapters. The identity of these things becomes clear when we consider that Romans 5, 1 through 11 forms an inclusio with Romans 8, 31 through 39. Now, an inclusio is a literary device that is used to frame a particular text. The main theme is introduced at the beginning of the text and then repeated at the end of the text. It's like brackets or bookends. It's used to signal the passage's main theme by repeating it and to alert the reader to the fact that everything that has been said between these bracketing statements must be understood in light of the main theme. That's how you're supposed to read everything that comes between. So when we compare Romans 5, 1 through 11 with Romans 8, 31 through 39, we see that both passages use similar arguments to make their points. Both passages emphasize our justification. Both passages indicate that God justifies us because he loves us. Both passages indicate that God's love is the source of our eternal hope. And everything in between proves this point. We are saved and we are sanctified because God loves us. And our hope for glory rests on the unshakable foundation of God's eternal love. So why does Paul begin and end Romans 5 through 8 like this? So that we don't miss the point. So that we walk away from this passage rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Now, Paul could have ended the chapter with verses 28 through 30. They feel climactic. They are glorious. Look at that passage with me. Look at verse 28 with me. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why not end there? Why not end there? Why doesn't Paul end there? Why ask another question? You can almost see Paul's audience squirming in their seats. You mean he's not done? He's still going? 
What then shall we say to these things? I'm pretty sure you've said it all. I don't think there's anything else left to say. It's time to land the plane. I got lunch plans afterwards. Paul's my kind of preacher. You see, Paul couldn't stop at verse 30. He couldn't stop there. He had to get back to the love of God because nothing builds hope like God's love. Nothing calms our anxious hearts like the love of God. And I think Paul knew that there would be some Christians who would read his letter and would have a really hard time believing what he wrote. Some might respond, Paul, you said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You said that God's Spirit has freed us from the law of sin and death. You said that the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. You said that the Spirit prays for us. You said we're justified. You said we're glorified. But I just don't feel it. I feel guilty. Really, really guilty. I can't stop sinning. I want to, but I can't. It's weighing me down. It's like I can't even breathe sometimes. I don't have any assurance that I'm saved. I can't believe that God would ever save someone like me. And most of the time, I feel so alone. I don't feel like anyone's praying for me. I don't feel like God is with me, and I certainly don't feel justified or glorified. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you went to bed feeling hopeless. Perhaps you woke up feeling hopeless. Perhaps you came to church feeling hopeless, struggling to believe God's promises, struggling to believe God's word. Friends, God wants you to know that he is for you, that he loves you, that your salvation doesn't depend on your feelings. Your salvation doesn't depend on what you've done. It depends on all that God has done for you in Christ. It doesn't depend on the strength of your love for him. It depends on the strength of his love for you. And Paul wants every Christian to know that. So he takes time to marshal the strongest argument he possibly can for our eternal security and our eternal hope. And he roots the strongest of all arguments in God's eternal love for sinners. Think about that. Think about what Paul's doing. Suppose there's a woman. And one day, she says to her husband, Honey, why did you marry me? To which he responds, Well... From a financial perspective, it seemed to make a lot of sense. It would relieve me of a substantial burden if we split the cost of everything, and it would increase my disposable income, and you know how much I like to golf. And I didn't want to die an old bachelor. You were the best option at the time, so I married you. You're still the best option I have, so I've stuck around. Would that make her feel secure? Would that give her hope for the future? I don't think so. Now suppose she asks the same question, but this time her husband responds by saying, because I love you, because I love you so much, I always have and I always will. I wanted to be with you. I wanted to be with you forever. I wanted to share my life with you. That has a completely different feel, doesn't it? 
If the relationship is purely transactional, it's fragile. But if he loves her, really loves her out of the depths of his heart, that's something. That's something with some real power. When Paul says that God loves us unilaterally, it should make us feel safe. It should make us feel secure. It should make us courageous. It should give us hope. And that's precisely what Paul intended to do when he asked the question, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, launched into one of the most awesome discussions of Christian hope in all of Scripture. Now, to demonstrate this, to prove that God's love is irrevocable, Paul makes four arguments. He gives us four proofs. And each of these proofs is framed as a question, and each question is designed to highlight four pillars of Christian hope. The entire section kind of feels like a legal proceeding. The prosecutor has made his case, and now arguments are presented on behalf of the defendant. And the first argument that Paul makes is that God is for us, and that is in verse 31. Paul writes, if God is for us, or since God is for us. It's a simple statement, but it's incredibly profound. It's brief, but it's filled with meaning. It really summarizes the entire Bible. The Bible is a story of God for you. That's the main storyline of the Bible. And it means that God is on our side, that he's with us, that he fights for us. It means that he will never leave us or forsake us. In every valley, in every trial, in every temptation, he will be by your side. The follow-up question, who can be against us? God is for us, who can be against us? Draws our attention to the critical issue. And the logic is impeccable, right? If God is God, if he is sovereign, if he is all-powerful and all-knowing, if he created everything that exists and sustains everything that exists by his word, there can be no greater force in all the universe. Everything that exists is necessarily inferior to the one who created it. And if God is for you, if he's on your side, there's no one to condemn. There's no one who will prevail against you. Not in an ultimate sense. On the way to eternity, we may lose a skirmish or two, but we'll never lose the war. Romans 8.37 says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The worst that anyone can do is kill us. But our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. That's the hope that we have. If the one true living God is on your side, no one can stand against you. Not even death or him who has the power of death will be victorious over you. But God's not just the ultimate big brother or big sister that bullies our bullies. He's more than that. He's the lover of our souls, and verse 31 emphasizes this truth. God is for us because he loves us, and because he loves us, he is working all things together for our good. 
This doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good or that everyone that crosses our paths is good or that they have our best interests in mind. What it does mean is that everything, good or bad, will be used by God to prepare us for glory, for our eternal rest, reward, and joy. God will use the worst that can happen to us for good. That's what he did for Job. That's what he did for Joseph. That's what he did for Naomi and Ruth and Daniel and Esther and Mordecai and countless others who trusted in the Lord. And God will do the same for you. I don't know how, but somehow, some way, in this life or in eternity, your loving, sovereign, creator God will use your suffering, no matter how severe, for your eternal good. Let that fill you with hope this morning. Argument number two. God gave us his own son. And we read that in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave us his own son. When we're suffering, it's hard to believe that God is for us, right? It's hard to believe. When we hear Paul say, God is for you. He's always for you. It's easy to respond, well, it sure doesn't feel like that. And when the pain lingers, as it often does, it's easy to reject Paul's point altogether. And Paul knows this. He knows this. Paul lived life in the trenches. And so Paul substantiates his claim, God is for us, with the strongest argument he can muster. The cross. Paul proves this point by saying that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What more could God do? What more could God give? What more could God sacrifice? Nothing. There's nothing more that he could sacrifice. He gave us his son, his treasured son, his glorious son. He gave us everything. He didn't withhold anything from us. The cross proves that God is for us. The cross proves that God loves us. That's what we studied together last month. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There's no counter-argument that could invalidate this truth. And Paul uses this truth to quiet the doubts that so frequently arise in our hearts. Let this truth silence your doubts this morning. Let it cheer your heart. God sent his son to save you. And if God sent his son to save you, he will do everything that is necessary to sustain you and to sanctify you, to preserve you and protect you and prepare you for his presence. That's the point Paul makes. If God did not withhold what is best, his own son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything else that could be given pales in comparison. If God gave what is most needful and most costly, he will not hesitate to give whatever else is needed. That's Paul's point. Guys, speaking to men, do you remember buying your wife's engagement ring? Do you remember heading to the jewelers, spotting the perfect 
princess-cut diamond nestled in a flawless, four-pronged, white-gold setting that accentuated its brilliance? Do you remember handing over all that hard-earned cash to get it? Do you remember? You may not remember the other stuff, but you probably remember that. <laughs> Did they give you a box to take it home in? Did they give you a box to protect it? to preserve its pristine beauty? Of course they did. Of course they gave you a box. If God gave you his son, and here's the point, if God gave you his son, he will graciously supply everything else that is needed to grow your faith and bring you safely into his presence. God will complete the good work he has begun in you. Paul argues from what is certain and irrefutable to prove to you that God is providing everything that you need for life and godliness, no matter what life throws at you. In every situation, God is pursuing your best interest. Let that comfort your heart in every trial. God is doing something good through it, church. Argument number three, God justifies us. We see that in verse 33. Paul writes, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God justifies us. Paul's third argument is a derivative of his first argument. In verse 31, Paul argued, If the most powerful being in the universe is on your side, you don't need to be afraid of anything that anyone else could do to you. That was his point. In verse 33, Paul argues, if the highest ranking judge in the entire universe has justified you, has declared that you are righteous, has declared that you are not guilty of the charges that have been brought against you, there is no one else that can overturn his ruling. God is like the Supreme Court. Everyone else is like the local municipal court. There's no higher court of appeals than God. God's verdict is final. God has justified you. Because of Christ, God looks at you and says, not guilty. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Not this world, not the devil, not yourself. Let this truth silence every accusation. Let it fill you with a sense of security, even if everything else seems to be falling down around you. Let it fill you with hope. Tri-County, I pray that your confidence would be unshakable, that you would long for the day when you stand before the judge of all judges, and he says, not guilty, and you are received into the everlasting arms of your heavenly Father. Argument number four. Jesus defends us. We see this in verse 34. Paul writes, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? In verse 34, Paul returns to the courtroom, as it were, and he asks this question. Who is to condemn? And the answer that he provides is the basis for our justification. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Jesus' death canceled the record of debt that stood against us. His resurrection from the dead and his exaltation to God's right hand 
proved that his sacrifice was acceptable. He is the perfect high priest who makes the perfect sacrifice for imperfect people so that God will always see them in the sinless perfection of his son. He did everything right. He finished the work of salvation, and God bestowed upon him the highest honor imaginable. He exalted him to his right hand. No one can question the effectiveness of Christ's death. He has sanctified us forever. We're holy in God's sight. We have every reason to believe that Christ has secured our salvation. No one can condemn. No one can undo what Christ has done, even if they tried, because Jesus is there to defend us. And that's what Paul says in the second half of this verse. He says that Jesus is at God's right hand and that he is indeed interceding for us. The Apostle John says that if we sin, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Our enemies have lots of ammo to use against us. But we have Jesus Christ the righteous pleading our cause. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way. He says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And that he's holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And the point of all of that is this. Jesus is the apple of his Father's eye. He's infinitely virtuous. He's infinitely glorious. He has his Father's full attention. And in the presence of his Father, he never stops defending us. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan accuses us day and night. But it doesn't matter because Jesus is there at God's right hand, pleading our case, pleading his blood, pleading the merits of his death, proving our forgiveness, declaring our righteousness, securing the fulfillment of God's promises to us. Try as he might, and he tries. Satan can't win this argument. The prosecution doesn't stand a chance. There's no defense attorney like Jesus. There's no one who can snatch us from his grip. There's no one who can separate us from his love. That's incredibly comforting. And that's Paul's final point. God's love for us is indestructible. Verse 35 ushers us into the second half of this passage. It connects verses 31 through 34 with verses 35 through 39, and it fills us with hope. It brings everything that Paul has said to its grand climax. And what it means for us is that we should be characterized by hope, eternal hope, indomitable hope, because the triune God loves us and will never let us go. When Paul asks in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He doesn't lose his train of thought. He's not switching concepts. It's the point he's been making all along. Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession aren't disconnected from his love. They're the very things that prove it. Jesus left heaven, 
took on flesh, became a servant, died the death we deserved, rose victorious, returned to the Father's right hand, and never stops defending us because he loves us. I'm not sure what else you would call that. God called it love. Jesus called it love. Paul called it love. I think it's love. I think that God has done everything that is necessary to secure our salvation and to see the entire project through to completion because he loves us. But, but verse 35 is just the tip of the iceberg. The entire section is like a beautiful piece of music, expertly arranged for maximum effect, building phrase by phrase until it reaches its glorious climax in verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When you examine the overall structure of these verses, and you can see it up there on the screen, when you examine the overall structure of these verses, it's easy to see that the main point of this passage is the unconquerable love of the triune God. And because this God loves us, with an unconquerable love, we are more than conquerors. And the affliction list, that bracket, verse 37, are added for emphasis and are designed to highlight our overwhelming victory in Christ. The first list, at the end of verse 35, or in the second half of verse 35, describes the kinds of enemies and the kinds of suffering that God's people have experienced throughout history. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That was certainly true in Paul's experience. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that he was imprisoned, beaten, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, always in danger, always toiling, often tired, often hungry, often without proper clothing, often with nowhere to stay. Paul suffered. A lot, just like God's people under the Old Covenant, which is why he quotes Psalm 44, 22 in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That was the experience of God's people under the Old Covenant, of God's faithful people under the Old Covenant. Faithfulness to God has always been met with opposition, and it's still met with opposition. Christians all across the world are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. This may seem distant or outdated for those of us living in America, but this is the experience of God's people all over the world right now. It was, the, it was their experience back then, it's their experience now. And Paul is writing this text, this passage to encourage them. And so he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, cannot beat us. It will never beat us. It will never win. It will never separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul lays all of these things out there to draw our attention to all that Jesus will deliver us from. No matter what comes our way, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And the second list that we read of in verses 38 and the first part of verse 39 are going to use categorical extremes to refer to everything that could potentially separate us from God's love. And Paul is going to mention death and life 
and angels and demons and things present and things to come, all powers in earth and heaven and height and depth to demonstrate that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from God's love. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. That's the point of verse 37. And when it's all said and done, when the battle's over, there will be no question who the victor is. Jesus will stand tall over all of his enemies, and we will stand with him. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Let that fuel your hope in 2024. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God, let this truth, let this truth shape our lives in the coming year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.